Perhaps one of the most depressing periods of time in church Greetings history. from Latter-day Media, presenting our dear friend and epic historian on so Joseph Smith and church history, her. Brother K. Godfrey. The Echo of a Beating Heart, Part 5. Welcome back. Today's podcast will cover the years of 1836 through 1838, the final and concluding podcast of The Echo of a Beating Heart. Joseph Smith's Kirtland era. We'll begin today's podcast talking a little bit about an ex- incredible Pentecostal period of time in, in church history and conclude with perhaps one of the most depressing periods of time in church history. The apostate persecution was, was severe at that particular point in time. So let's get started with our presentation today. The year of 1836 would be recorded historically as the year of Pentecost. More Latter-day Saints witnessed visions and spiritual revelations than any other time in the history of the church. From January 21st right through May 1st, the veil was very, very thin. On ten different occasions, congregations saw heavenly messengers. At five of these gatherings, the Savior was seen. On January 21st, 1836, just a few months prior to the temple completion, 40 men accompanied the prophet to the temple third floor attic. Those in attendance were such notables as Sidney Rigdon, Oliver Cowdery, and David Whitmer, Hiram Smith, Joseph Smith Sr., W.W. Phelps, John Whitmer, Warren Parrish, Edward Partridge, Isaac Morley, Newell K. Whitney, and others. Earlier in the day, these brethren had met in the printing office next door to the temple and received at the hands of Joseph their washing and anointing ordinances. At this meeting, the ordinance of washing of the feet was administered. Olive oil was consecrated, and the head of Father Joseph Smith Sr. was anointed and blessed. Others were anointed and blessed, including Joseph, who was blessed by the First Presidency. At this time the heavens were opened, and Joseph saw the celestial kingdom. He saw the throne of God the Father and the Son. He also saw Adam and Abraham, and his brother Alvin, who had died earlier without baptism. Now this led to the revelation known as Doctrine and Covenants section 137. Men are judged as to their works and the desires of their hearts, and all children who die prior to the age of accountability are saved in the celestial kingdom. The prophet then assured the men that they had now been given all of the instruction necessary for them to go forth and build up the kingdom of God, having passed through all of the necessary ceremonies. The meeting concluded at 1.30 a.m., with many having witnessed great visions. With the continuing translation of the book of Abraham, Joseph took a keen interest in ancient languages. Oliver Cowdery had returned from the east with many interesting books. Joseph sent Orson Hyde to the Western Reserve Academy in Hudson to employ Joshua Sussex as a Hebrew instructor. He was contracted to teach 40 students there in Kirtland for seven weeks for $320. One student was a non-member by the name of Lorenzo Snow. Lorenzo had come in contact with the church through Apostle David W. Patton while he was attending Oberlin College. The Oliver Snow family was familiar with Sidney Rigdon, who in 1827 had established a Disciples of Christ Church near their home in Manaway, Ohio. Sidney had the opportunity to teach the Snow family, first as a Campbellite and then as a member of the church. 
Lorenzo was baptized in June of 1836 and was eventually destined to become the fifth president of the church. In February, at the site of Newell K. Whitney's home, the church opened its doors to the poor and needy for the entire area. This Christ-like gesture became known as the, quote, Feast for the Poor. As the dedication of the temple grew closer, the brethren from Missouri were again summoned to Kirtland. The majestic building was completed in less than three years, building great poverty at a cost of $40,000. It measured 59 feet by 79 feet and was two and a half stories high. Its spires rised 110 feet from the ground. The building was constantly under guard to protect its workers from mob violence. Now, the inside of the temple consisted of the first floor, or apostolic floor, the second floor, or church floor, and the attic, or school, or quorum floor. March 27, 1836, the temple was dedicated. The doors opened at 8 a.m. More than 1,000 people had been waiting in line. Overflow extended to the surrounding grounds and buildings. Because of the numbers, a second dedication was scheduled for Thursday, March 31st. This dedication day was called a day of sacrifice, and donations were collected at the door. Three large tin pans filled with gold and silver coins were collected. A total of $960 was collected. The choir sang the opening song, followed by the discourse, by discourse by President Rigdon. He spoke for a mere two and a half hours. After a brief intermission, the officers of the church were sustained, and Joseph read the dedicatory prayer as given in Revelation. A new hymn was then sung, The Spirit of God, written by W. W. Phelps. Don Carlos then blessed the bread and wine, and the elders passed the sacrament to the congregation. Remarks were then given by Hiram Smith, followed by the Hosanna shout, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna to God and the Lamb, Amen, repeated three times. Brigham Young then arose and spoke in tongues, and Apostle David W. Patton interpreted. Joseph finally concluded by blessing the congregation. The entire service lasted seven hours. That evening, 400 priesthood holders again assembled in the temple for a special priesthood meeting. While George A. Smith was speaking, quote, a noise was heard like the sound of a mighty rushing wind that filled the temple. Many present saw angels and spiritual manifestations. The people of the neighborhood came running after hearing the great sound, and there they witnessed a pillar of fire resting on the temple. Others saw angels standing on the roof of the temple. The culmination of the outpouring of spirit happened on Easter Sunday, April 3rd. Joseph and Oliver were praying near the Melchizedek priesthood pulpits in the west end of the lower room. The canvas veil had been drawn so they could pray in private. As they prayed, we read in Doctrine and Covenants section 110, quote, The veil was taken from their minds, and the eyes of their understanding were opened. The Savior himself appeared and accepted the temple. The prophet Moses then appeared and restored the keys of the gathering of Israel. Elias appeared and conferred the dispensation of the gospel of Abraham. Finally, Elijah the prophet appeared and restored the keys of sealing. Well, the dispensation of the fullness of times had arrived.
With spirits renewed, Joseph called many to serve missions. One such individual was Parley P. Pratt, who was called in April to serve in the Toronto, Canada mission. One of Parley's converts, while in Canada, was a Methodist preacher by the name of John Taylor. Another was a young lady whose name was Mary Fielding. Well, John Taylor became the third president of the church, and Mary Fielding married Hiram Smith and became the mother of the sixth president of the church, Joseph F. Smith, and grandmother of the tenth president of the church, Joseph Fielding Smith. With the ever-increasing numbers of converts moving to the proximity of Zion, the saints' population of Clay County, Missouri, began to become an issue. Joseph knew the church could not survive long in Clay County. A new and suitable place to live had to be found quickly. Joseph sent Edward Partridge and W.W. Phelps on an exploring expedition to find a new settlement for the saints. They went into the northern region of Missouri, commonly referred to as Far West. He was pleased to find that they had located an uninhabited area of northern Ray County along the Shoal Creek. On May 3, 1836, Joseph authorized the brethren to start purchasing land in the area. The challenges of Missouri were momentarily forgotten when on May 27th, Joseph's grandmother, Mary Duty Smith, who had traveled 500 miles to visit her grandchildren, died after only being with the family a short time in Kirtland. She was 93 years old and was buried in the Kirtland Temple Cemetery. Sidney Rigdon delivered a very fine eulogy to the Grand Lady. Joseph's inspiration to move the Missouri Saints came none too soon, as on May 29th, the Missouri leaders of Clay County petitioned the Saints to leave. Clay County, as their neighbors to the south in Jackson, had found fault with the Saints on five fronts. The Saints were poor. The Saints seemed prejudiced. The Missourians did not like the eastern customs brought by the Saints. The Saints opposed slavery, and the Saints believed the Indians were a chosen people. The people of Clay County promised to control the violence and formed committees to assist the saints if they would agree to leave the county. The saints thanked the good people of Clay County for their help and promised to leave. Joseph petitioned Governor Daniel Duncan for protection as the saints left for Ray County. Joseph petitioned Governor Daniel Duncan for protection as the saints left for Ray County. His reply was as follows, and I quote Governor Dunklin. Public sentiment may become the law when one man or societies of men become so bitter and repulsive to that sentiment as to determine the people to be rid of him or them, it is useless to run counter to it. The consequences will be the same unless you can, by your conduct and arguments, convince them, the people of Missouri, of your innocence. If you cannot do this, all I can say to you is that the voice of the people is the voice of God." In other words, guilty until proven innocent. Well, with no assurance of help or protection from the state, an emergency session of the High Council in Missouri was called. On July 25th, they met to define a course of action. One hundred families were now camping in Lower Ray County on the Crooked River. They were ill and without funds. One hundred families were en route from the Mississippi River, ill and poverty-stricken. Thomas Marsh and Elijah H. Groves were sent to the surrounding states to try to find money for the, quote, 
poor, bleeding saints. The church reassured the people of Ray County that they only intended to settle in the prairies to the north. A proposal was offered the residents of Ray County and accepted. A six-mile buffer zone would be established between the citizens of Ray County and the saints' settlement. The area chosen for the establishment of a community was 12 miles west of Hans Mill, which was a small Mormon community established by Jacob Hahn on the Shoal Creek a year earlier. The community would be called Far West City. The prophet sent a plat map written on a sheepskin for the layout of the city, which by 1837 had 5,000 occupants. In August, the prophet participated in a rather unique experience. Joseph, Hiram, Sidney, and Oliver traveled to Salem, Massachusetts, rented a house, and lived for a month on Union Street. They had come in search of funds for the church's debts and to preach door-to-door. Now, while back in Kirtland, Jonathan Burgress had told the brethren of buried treasure left in one of the homes on Union Street. Burgess met with the brethren in Salem, but because of the changes in the area, he was unable to identify for certain which house contained the treasure. The brethren found the house that they felt was right, but failed to find the treasure. On August the 6th, Joseph received a revelation, Doctrine and Covenants section 111, which promised that a way would be made for the church to pay its debts, and treasure hunting was not the way. He was told to preach the gospel to the people of Salem and reclaim their treasures or souls. This public preaching was done from the Lyceum, which is now a restaurant in Salem's central city. With the financial security of the church weighing heavy on the prophet's mind, the leadership of the church decided to pursue the idea of establishing a bank. Orson Hyde was sent to the capital of Ohio to obtain approval from the legislature to issue a charter to church to open their own bank. The charter, however, was denied. At the same time, Oliver Cowdery was sent to Philadelphia to purchase plates for printing currency. This he was successful in doing. The table was now slowly being set for what would become one of Joseph's most difficult tests. The wheat and the tares were about to be divided. As Joseph was contemplating the church's financial future, the saints in Missouri were busy establishing their new home. In December of 1836, our good friend Alexander Donovan introduced a bill in the Missouri State Legislature proposing the creation of two small counties out of the sparsely settled regions of Ray County, Davies and Caldwell Counties. Each was named after a famous Kentucky Indian fighter. Caldwell County was located on the far west settlement and was exclusively for the Mormons. This would allow the church to have representation in the state legislature. On December 29, 1836, the newly elected Governor Lalburn W. Boggs signed the bill creating the two new counties. 1837 was the year of apostasy. January started with enthusiasm and some financial success. Thomas Marsh and Elijah Groves returned from their efforts to secure money for the poor bleeding saints of Missouri. They were able to gather $1,450, which they turned over to the Missouri State Presidency, David Whitmer, John Whitmer, and W.W. Phelps. 
In Kirtland, the petition was denied for the formation of a bank. However, it was felt that individuals had the right to organize a private company that could engage in banking. And so the Saints chose to form a stock industrial company known as the Kirtland Safety Society. On January 2nd, 1837, it opened its doors for business. The firm had 32 managers. Sidney Rigdon served as the secretary, Joseph Smith as the treasurer. Unfortunately, the timing could not have been worse. From February to May, the country entered a severe economic depression. It began with President Andrew Jackson abolishing the National Bank. Suddenly, bank failures were everywhere. Banks were unable to convert land holdings into cash. By May, more than 800 banks had failed, with deposits more than $120 million. The country was on the verge of the greatest financial crisis it had faced. In the spirit of restless speculation, the Kirtland Safety Society found its paper currency worthless and its notes issued were not being honored by other banks. Enemies of the church had acquired enough notes to force a run on the society. This forced the suspension of payments to its customers after just a few weeks of issuing its first notes. Aside from the evil designs of men, part of the problem was that the capital of the society was primarily in the form of land and not cash. I have here a, a, uh, a picture of what the, uh, the notes look like. This would be a $1 and $5 note. Um, this is this is what was issued to the uh, to the customers and then found to be nothing more than useless paper because of the situation involving the economy at the time. In February, a group of apostates held a meeting and claimed Joseph to be a fallen prophet. After all, if he were a prophet, he would have perceived the eventual fall of the economy and saved the bank. This meeting was attended by Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball, and they stood faithfully defending Joseph. They said, and I quote, well, They can only destroy their own authority, cut their threads and bind them to the prophet and to God, and then sink themselves to hell. On February 19th, Joseph was able to speak by the power of God for several hours and silence the complainers temporarily. Uh, the shirt term fixed was not going to last long, and apostasy was going to prevail. During the next six months of dark heresy, many would blame Joseph for their problems and leave the church. Such prominent members as the three witnesses, David Whitmer, Oliver Cowdery, and Martin Harris, Frederick G. Williams, a member of the First Presidency, four members of the Quorum of Twelve Apostles, Luke Johnson, Lyman Johnson, John Boynton, William McClellan, the entire presidency of the church in Missouri, David Whitmer, John Whitmer, and W.W. W. Phelps, and several members of the first Quorum of Seventies all apostatized. On April 12, 1838, these men would all be cut off from the church. It was a sorrowful day for Joseph when he lost the companionship of those whom he had had so many glorious spiritual experiences with. On an interesting side note is William E. McClellan who, after being cut off from the church, joined several factions of, of the church. He was regularly interviewed later in life and kept diaries and papers about the activities of the church. In the 1980s, a Mormon document forger named Mark Hoffman claimed to have found the McClellan Papers. 
His cover-up and forgeries led to the death of two individuals in 1985 and his subsequent arrest and conviction. He is currently serving a life sentence in the Utah State Penitentiary. In June of 1837, Joseph was brought to trial in Painesville for the attempted murder of Gratison Newell. Newell filed more than 30 lawsuits against the prophet while incurred. Well, all charges were dismissed. The prophet also formally resigned his post as treasurer from the failed Kirtland Safety Society. About this time, Warren Parrish, a one-time scribe for the prophet, who, like so many others, was filled with apostasy, was accused of embezzling $25,000 of the Kirtland Safety Society funds. No doubt this would lead to some of the complications and problems with the Kirtland Safety Society. Joseph was desperately looking for something to stem the tide of the adversary and refocus the church. Joseph found that something in the form of Heber C. Kimball. On June 1st, Heber C. Kimball was set apart as a member of the Quorum of Twelve Apostles. On June 4th, Apostle Kimball was called along with Orson Hyde, Joseph Fielding, John Goodson, Isaac Russell, Willard Richards, and John Snyder to open up the British Isle Mission. This is what the church needed, new converts who were distant from the Kirtland and Missouri problems. Well, this small band of faithful missionaries arrived in England on July 19, 1837. They went to visit Joseph Fielding's brother, James Fielding, living in Preston, England. While they were there, they preached to overflow crowds. Satan's power was felt often. In fact, on July 30th, as they were preparing for their first baptism, Apostle Kimball was knocked unconscious by an evil spirit. Now, the baptisms went on as scheduled, and nine people were baptized. The first person to be baptized was George D. Watt. Well, during the next five days, 110 people joined the church. Prior to the returning home in April of 1838, these missionaries would be responsible for more than 2,000 people being baptized and 26 branches of the church being organized. As hundreds withdrew from the church in Kirtland and Missouri, thousands were joining overseas. Of note, the Preston England Temple was dedicated on June 7, 1998, becoming the 52nd operating temple in the church and the second in Great Britain. Well, Joseph loved the Canadian people. On July 27th through September 18th, he served a mission to Canada. He paused briefly to enjoy his favorite resting place on Lake Erie, Ashtabula. In his absence, apostates Warm Parish and Apostle John Boynton led a group of pistols and knives in an attempt to take over the Kirtland Temple. In a state of panic and terror, many people jumped out of the temple windows. Uh, the police did manage to suppress the disturbance and remove the men. Upon Joseph's returns, these men were disfellowshipped from the church. In late September, Joseph and Sidney left again, this time to Missouri, to attempt to put the church in order there. And like before, when the prophet turned his back, the local apostates would take advantage of his absence. The same cast as before, Warren Parrish and John Boynton, plus Luke Johnson and 30 others leading citizens, organized a group called the, quote, Old Standard or Church of Christ. They considered themselves reformers and stated that Joseph was a fallen prophet. They also said the Book of Mormon was untrue. 
However, in this regard, they ran into opposition with Martin Harris, who, although going through his own apostasy, would not deny the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon. As a result of their actions, 50 leading members of the church were excommunicated when the prophet returned from Missouri in December. The fall was a time of purging and retrenchment for the church. Church leadership was sensitive to ardent spirits and false teachings within its rank and file. The New England saints, who migrated to Kirtland, retained many of their old ways regarding dance and theater and other recreational activities. The Kirtland saints were more conservative and often viewed these activities with contempt. Quote, on October 22nd, 22 members were disfellowshipped for a worldly dance the Thursday previous. The practice of suffering boys and girls to be strolling about the streets without any business is unrighteous and leads to vice, to vicious habits, to laziness, to profanity and disobedience, and without speedy repentance will leave many souls to reap the reward of their folly. Yeah, such was the attitude of the times. Joseph arrived in Far West on November 1st. It seems the biggest challenge facing the prophet was the Missouri Presidency. When brothers Marsh and Groves had returned from their fundraising efforts for the poor bleeding saints of Missouri, they had turned over the $1,450 raised to counselors John Whitmer and W.W. W. Phelps. David Whitmer was in Ohio at this time. The counselors used the money to purchase land in their own name and then turned around and sold it to the saints for a profit which they personally retained. Well, the Far West High Council heard of this and immediately protested. Bishop Edward Partridge and Apostles Thomas Marsh and David Patton, who were residing in Missouri at the time, were called upon to distribute the land properly. While in Far West, Frederick G. Williams was rejected as second counselor in the First Presidency, and Hiram Smith was sustained in his stead. Quote, By Joseph's side would Hiram now remain, until martyrs they would jointly become. I brought with me a uh, this olive wood um, sculpture of Joseph and Hiram. Um, Hiram's going to play a huge part in the history of the church from about this point on. And this is a, this is a great uh, uh, olive wood bust of the two of them. I wanted to bring that and share that with you. Well, with the internal problems of the Missouri church temporarily solved, the prophet returned to Kirtland on December the 10th. Unfortunately, Joseph had not left his troubles behind. The grim task of excommunicating 50 leading members of the church was now facing him. During this time of absence from Kirtland, one man had stayed firm in his defense of the prophet, and that man was Brigham Young. He was openly fearless in his declaration of the prophet Joseph Smith. His unwavering attitude aroused the fury of the enemies of the church, and they were determined to kill him. He learned of their evil designs. And on December 22nd, nearly two weeks after the prophet had returned to Kirtland and was able to assert his own authority, Brigham Young left Kirtland permanently. He had to escape the assassins who were com committed to his death. Unbeknownst to Joseph, he soon would be joining Brigham. And the heart of Kirtland was soon to stop beating. With Brigham Young gone to far west, the enemies of the church took courage, breathing out many threats against Joseph and other members of the high council. 
The office of the First Presidency and Church Printing Office was burned down by an unknown arsonist in early January. The enemies of the church were becoming bolder and more aggressive. One evening, Luke Johnson, an apostate but friendly to the prophet, came to Joseph and warned him of an impending assassination attempt. On January the 12th, 1838, late in the evening, Joseph was placed inside of a wooden box and put on an ox cart and taken out of town. When safely out of the mob's reach, he mounted a horse and rode westward with Sidney Rigdon. The mob was infuriated to find their plans thwarted and pursued after Joseph for nearly 200 miles. At times, they were close enough that Joseph could hear their threats and cursing. On January 16th, Joseph was joined by his family. They proceeded overland by covered wagon. This was the fifth and last trip the prophet would make to Missouri. In February, as the prophet and his family are journeying to far west, the Missouri High Council met and removed the entire Missouri presidency. W.W. W. Phelps and John Whitmer for continuing to scheme the saints in finances, and David Whitmer for blatant disregard for the word of wisdom. Apostles Patton and Marsh became the acting presidency until the prophet arrived in far west. With Joseph gone, the Kirtland High Council was also being threatened. Most of them followed the prophet to Missouri shortly after he had left. As Joseph's company approached far west, arrangements had been made for the prophet's family to reside at the home of George and Lucinda Harris. Here they would reside for two months before moving into their own home near the temple lot. Far west, Caldwell County, Missouri, would now become the heart and soul of the church. On March 13, 1838, Joseph and his six-month pregnant wife Emma rode into far west to the throngs of thousands of excited, cheering saints. It brings to mind John 12, 12 and 13. On the next day, much people that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him, and cried, Hosanna! Blessed is the King of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. Now the prophet Joseph Smith had come in the name of the Lord. In the space of seven short years, Joseph had received 84 separate revelations, including at least nine recorded visions of the Father and the Son. The keys of authority from Moses, Elias, and Elijah were restored. Joseph organized the Melchizedek and Aaronic priesthoods with their offices of leadership. He translated the Bible. He translated the Book of Mormon. He... Yeah. Okay. Joseph organized the Melchizedek and Aaronic priesthoods with their pre... Joseph organized the Melchizedek and Aaronic priesthoods with their offices of leadership. He translated the Bible, he translated the book of Moses, and he translated the book of Abraham. A worldwide missionary program was established. An economic system for caring for the saints was created. The first modern-day temple was erected. The Book of Commandments and other scriptures were published. Gospel-oriented schools were opened, and most notably... The prophet Joseph Smith was beaten, tarred, feathered, harassed, abused, and persecuted. Having now followed the footsteps of Joseph to far west, we leave him with a much-needed and deserving rest for a season. We close with his own words of admonition to the saints of both his day and ours, 
and I quote, If you wish to go where God is, you must be like God, or possess the principles which God possesses. For if we are not drawing towards God in principle, we are going from Him and drawing towards the devil. Search your hearts and see if you are like God. I have searched mine and feel to repent of my sins. Our next podcast will usher in a new era. We're going to call it the silver-lined clouds of war. Until then, enjoy your continuing study of the Doctrine and Covenants, and thank you for joining me today. This Come Follow Me video series is a bonus resource to enhance your appreciation of the Prophet Joseph Smith with little-known facts and research about American and church history. Thank you for listening today and for sharing this ComeFollowMe2021.com website. We sure appreciate those who have been contributing on our Patreon page under Latter-day Media. We'll have a link in the show notes, and we would love to invite more to help support this work. To contact Kay, email him at footstepsofjoseph at gmail.com.